Off the Ball. Getting inside the game. Sponsored by Ireland's favourite car brand, Ford. Go further. Earlier today, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Brian O'Driscoll, who was in studio promoting his new autobiography, The Test. And here's how we got on. So, the decision to write a book. When did you decide you were going to write this book? A few years ago, um, I just decided that it would be a good opportunity to be able to give a better account of yourself than perhaps is public perception. Mm-hmm. You're probably quite guarded as a player. Well, I, sorry, I don't say, speak in generalisation. I felt that I needed to be guarded as a player in what way I put myself across or what messages I was relaying or mm. what messages I had to deliver as a captain. And so you're restricted to the thought process of the team rather than individualised. And that's why doing a book, you can give people a sense of who you really are. Mm. Is it an enjoyable process? Parts of it are enjoyable. Parts are torturous. Yeah. Um, Because you think, everyone wonders, is is my life all that? You know, no matter what's gone on. Mm. um, You go, really? Do people want to hear that? that? Is that worth documenting? Um, so I had you know plenty of those moments, but then I knew there was a few decent stories that mm. um, that you know were good were good to go and good to to be told, and obviously one or two that no one had ever heard about. Mm. Yeah, jail time in New York. How like people have seen that story? I suspect over the last couple of days for you being involved in a fight, sort of, but not really. How did that stay quiet for so long? I don't know. It's like incredible. loads of people knew about it. Yeah, loads of people, and like lots of my teammates. It, it's uh, do you know what it's. It's a credit to them, yeah, um, for their loyalty, and for everyone that knew about it and never mentioned a word. And I met someone. I met um, one of the guys who's mentioned, Brian Whelan, in the book. I met him just after the Six Nations, just gone the day after, mm. and uh, like he, he he had a girlfriend of like three years. I was there. Did you ever say anything to her? God, no. Wow. I was like. You haven't said anything for six years to anyone, not a soul. And it's a story like, you feel would come up at some yeah, point, you know. Like it's it's a good story. Yeah, don't tell anyone, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of, you, know. And, you know, the next thing, several thousand people know. The point you make about incidental things that you suspect should I document these? Is anybody interested in these? I made a list of incidental things that I learned about Brian O'Driscoll reading the book. Okay, I'm intrigued. I'm going to fire some of these at you. We'll get through them. Okay. You hate being late. You're obsessive about it. Mm. Is your watch three minutes fast right now? Phone is five fast. Five fast. Mm. Okay. Like when when Donny, the producer, um, says to me on on, a, on a, any given day that I'm coming in here on a, on a Friday, I ask you know what time am I in for, and he says six. The first day I actually was like two minutes past six, and I was pulling my hair out. <laughs> right. We like, didn't mind. Yeah, thank you. Just cut me some slack for the first day. To the point where. As a school kid, instead of getting the 8.12am dart to Black Rock, it was delayed a few times, you panicked, you get the 7.27am one instead. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that's a... Four-seater, quite the luxury. Yeah. Uh, Declan Kidney told the 18-year-old Brian O'Driscoll not to spit in a team huddle, and ever since then you notice when anyone does it. Mm-hmm. David Beckham, the most striking man you've seen. Beautiful human being. You stared at him a lot in the BBC Personality of the Year with. And got caught on <laughs> multiple occasions. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, you really were blind. Mm, I mean, very, to, very to bad eyesight. Point where you have to ask Gordon Darcy what's the score mm-hmm. during games. Yeah, he got over that after a while. And yeah, he was my second set of eyes. How did you manage to get around that? Is it because you had it the whole time? Your brain yeah, just that's what the, that's what the surgeon said that I, because I had it 
from five years of age, I got glasses. And he said, I just, my brain adapted to what I could and couldn't see. Would you have been a better player if you could have seen him properly? Maybe the country. Um, really? Yeah, because maybe I was seeing things that weren't there or or that, yeah, there these gaping holes for me to run through were in actual fact considerably smaller. <laughs> you get odd letters from people. A feature right through the book. My personal favourite being when Amy falls pregnant and you get a nice letter saying, congratulations, and you think, oh, this, is, this is lovely. By the way, you might need a bigger house. We were offered six million for ours during the boom. We'll give it to you for 1.8 million. Thoughtful people. <laughs> listen. No, realistic. <laughs> Willing to cut a few mil off. Uh, Chrissy O'Connor Sr. gave you a golf lesson, but the teenage Brian O'Driscoll didn't know who the old guy bothering him was in the driving range. Yeah, it was like, oh, an old timer coming over to give me yeah. a few tips. What's he going to have to say? What's he going to teach me? <laughs> Back off, old guy. Uh, leave and start. You open your results. You haven't studied overly hard. You've done your bit. I've done a small bit. Probably, well, I've known I haven't done enough. Mm. E, F, F, N, G, E. I don't usually curse in front of mum. I'm definitely repeating. Mm. And then you realise, wrong name at the top. Yeah, then a f- pause of five seconds. She nearly crashes the car. <laughs> pause of five seconds as I'd thrown it on the ground pick yeah. it back up and obviously all the subjects are in uh, Irish Yeah, and I'm wondering yeah I, I, I don't recognise that yeah. God, what's that <laughs> and uh, woodwork tear something Yeah, I won't attempt to know what it is Irish was not, was not fantastic even on my own results Irish is not okay. beautiful <laughs> but um, yeah I see a different name I won't give away the person no. whose it was but it was uh, Brian something else that's a big moment of relief in your life, I suspect. That's, you know, it's hard, Huge. To, hard to be that one. Huge. And, but it was a false sense of security at the same time. Yeah. Because comparatively, when I did actually get my own results, I thought I was doing actuary in UCD. Mm. And then when I totted them up, just missed out on that. Okay. By a couple of hundred points. <laughs> <laughs> and so that covers the incidental things I learned about you. Okay. In the book. And then there's a nice segue from leave insert to... This period in your life, I don't quite understand where you're with the under-19s national side and you do very well, but you're not quite the star player there by any means or f- being fast-tracked to greatness. I, that's what I, I think and I read into it. To, in a very short space of time, Leinster and a tour of Australia and your dream of being the next Jerry Maguire in your sports management course in UCD is gone. And so what's going on from eighteen nineteen to superstardom? I, I, don't, I can't make sense of it. It's quick. It was quick. I, 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 it was there was a bit of a blink of an eye. Um, one, one big uh, springboard for me was definitely my first ever training session in the in the Irish setup in December '98. Mm-hmm. As a 19 year old myself and Gordon went to Galway and were asked, you know, from an academy point of view to go and train with, um, to train with the senior team and I was like what am I doing here this is way beyond me and we totally survived both of us right. and you know subsequently heard that you know the guys were looking on at the two of us going you know they're going to be in here very soon okay and we, we didn't know that so the but gap wasn't they were keeping an eye from there yeah. on on progression under 21s um, playing for UCD um, and then subsequently I, I sat on the bench for Ireland in the first game against the uh, Italy and the Six Nations in 2000 right. or in 99 I should say so the gap just wasn't as big as you thought it was no that Basically. was it it was a realisation oh you can actually go from third division UCD and be sitting on the bench yeah. in like a week 
It's quite surprising. It is. It's a shock. I knew that I couldn't use like third division UCD, but like even you're thinking third division to first division. Mm. I don't know if I can make that bridge that gap. And then, oh no, you can bridge that gap and you can sit on the bench for Ireland this weekend in Lansdowne Road. Okay. Now, thankfully, in many ways, I didn't come off the bench for that. Um, But then I got a chance to play my way into the national team by going on summer tour training for a few weeks with, with you know, the, the calibre of player playing mm. in two warm-up games and then next thing I'm playing against the world champions. One of the great things about the book is to see you go from very young teenager stroke 2021 to fully-fledged veteran and you're at Dublin Airport for the tour of Australia and Colin Murray comes over and asks you for an interview and you're not that accustomed to doing interviews and I, you, you muttered the line, yeah, there's a great squad turnout here. Yeah, yeah. You know, as if, as if it's an under 15s training session, <laughs> and you, like, weren't, you weren't sure. What yeah, the it was would be. like, are we going to have enough numbers to play? <laughs> <laughs> and this is yes, uh, everyone turned up. We we're going to be able to compete internationally against yeah. Australia. Yeah, and obviously from Colum's point of view, it was because we lived in the same um, in on the same street, yeah. and so a familiar face, and he would have seen me growing up, and he was excited by that. And and I was absolutely not accustomed to that level of interview. Mm. And then the knock-on effect of, you know, great squad turnout, obviously, I documented in the book that my pals and, and Mick Quinlan and his family have forever re- requested that it goes into speeches and, and after um, post-match interviews and wherever yeah. it, it sees fit. And they'll be delighted to hear, hear this. And <laughs> it's referenced here. It followed you around for a long time, it's fair to say. So you, you, you survived that and you do well and you're you're kind of, I guess you're getting a feel for what this is all about. And then Paris comes along and we all know about the hat-trick. The night out after Paris is, mm. is sensational stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, it was, not it was, the night out I, I would imagine you had. No, no. It was, um, yeah, so we had the post-match function and it was, it was kind of a very lavish affair Um as you know, the French is used to. It's not so much anymore. Right. Um, but yeah, it was there was a big focus on having a good night, and then I think to Kitty O'Shea's, and then I got you know, I think Gullivan and, and Joan said, "Come on, you know, we've had a good night. Let's go. Let's call it a night." And mm. the kebab shop and the out of nowhere dig that came through the door, and then the grabbing hold of the door closed, slammed shut, and back home to our hotel where I found more mischief in Rob. Uh, Henderson and he decided that we needed to go to VIP club on Champs-Élysées beautiful club great club which is a fantastic club yeah. unbelievable club if you look online on the pictures <laughs> which is as close as we got to seeing it after, afterwards because we got told to PFO yeah. and headed across for an omelette and chips and some shack across the way and a nice bottle of Sauvignon Blanc and so as you're puking on the Champs-Élysées Henderson saying wow what a wow con- three tries to this <laughs> Winner. <laughs> yeah. But that theme sort of runs through the book as well that, of course, there are highs and lows, but you're just having a ball of a time. Yeah. Yeah. I had a laugh throughout those early 20s. Yeah. We had, we had, and I wasn't like, I wasn't alone, you know, no. I'm probably, uh, I don't know. I, I I can't remember Roger's book, but um, I'd imagine Roger had a few good nights some good times. You know, through yeah. those days. Talk about the, those aftermatch functions mm. um, used to be like huge nights there were big events and like gala dinners now it's a big pain in the backside to go to an aftermatch function where you just want to be able to focus on the next game okay. get out get the, get the food done get the pleasantries done and the speeches mm. and let's head off home and I need to put ice on this or go and have a couple of quiet beers in the hotel like those you know 
I don't know why, how you would describe them. They were, yeah, they were they were banquets of yeah. extravagance. Yeah, you know, and it was probably the build up to a bit of Celtic Tiger too, where yeah. you know we weren't afraid of having a good time. Yeah, in some ways, that's the most fascinating part of the book. The the early Leinster years, I guess your early Leinster years were. There's the last vestiges of, of amateurism and you're having a good time, but also rugby is becoming unbelievably popular. Mm. And I, you know, the people would always say there used to be two or three hundred people at a Leinster mm. Munster game. I used to wonder when did that change? You know, when was the switch flicked? And Christmas 01 certainly seems to have been a moment where yeah. 30,000 turn up, people get in for free. Mm. They don't know how to handle the crowd. Mm. And you're in the midst of all this. Yeah, I remember that that day clearly. That was the Celtic League final, mm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember the aftermath, and obviously, um, you know the the branch, you know, and uh, um, I don't know if you got a bit of stick for not being able to deal with these crowds, but yeah. they had no idea that it was there that these numbers were coming. There, it, it came from nowhere. You know, you had your you know your expectation, and they have a fair idea expectation of ten or fifteen thousand, but when thirty thousand people turn up, mm. you've only got four turnstiles. <laughs> There's, there's issues right. uh, so yeah people had to be let in free and I suppose that became a learning curve for them and mm. and something for us to try to piggyback on as well that if we can do that for a Celtic League final against Munster surely we can do it for European games and we can build this to being something really special mm. Matt Williams is there and he's you know saying you're all wearing different clothes to training mm. you know we just look like amateurs and so that's starting to happen and yet the amateur side of it is still going on. There's, there's drinking and, and it just seems like, well, I wanted to ask, do you look back in it with fondness or regret? Because the Friday nights in Donnybrook after games and the boozing and it seems like a lovely time. But then you could have won more, possibly. Possibly, but fondness predominantly because okay. it fueled the desire to. I'm a, I'm a big believer that all of that, you, we are bored of it after a while because uh, bored of the of the good times without the winning. Yeah. So we had that quick su- that taste of success in in a one, and we thought we were probably a bit better than we were. And uh, and that team won something on raw talent rather than work ethic. Yeah. And that can't happen every time. So um, I look back on that and as really enjoyable days. That yeah, maybe we could have. We could have won a bit more, but you know, thankfully, we did win some later on, yeah. and some big stuff. Um, so they were great days in 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 kind of brewing that um, that necessity for success. Yeah, talk us about the time you're Ireland's sexiest man, and you're on the Late Late Show, and Dennis Hickey rings you, one of your great friends in the book, and features throughout and says, "How did this happen?" Yeah, it was a strong <laughs> question. <laughs> I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> I think it was rhetorical. Mm. Um, it really it, it did not need me to try and um, fight my corner because it was uh, looking back it was madness how I would have allowed something like that I guess the the difference was that I, I was kind of willing to take the piss out of myself a little bit with it but others took it really seriously and took it at face value so I kind of said had a laugh going can you believe this yeah. you know unlucky Colin Farrell into second place yeah um, you had a good year, yeah. but not but not a brilliant year. Yeah. Damien um, Duff was in was nominated. Chelsea, yeah, yeah busy in Chelsea. Bono, um, Bono, yeah, like he was strong. Oh three, oh two, oh four, maybe not so good either. So yeah, obviously, I I kind of I was available and uh, I knew up. one of the judges. Yeah. So um, 
I was able to turn up to the event. I was able to be encouraged to turn up to the event. And I didn't really, it was a naivety going, arriving into this, not knowing how big a deal was going to be made of it. Obviously, mm. you know, hindsight and everything is magnificent. But then to have to go on the late, late after that, literally two hours after being crowned with my new title and have the absolute mickey taken out of me by Pat Kenny was um, not one of the ones, one of the days to remember. Mm. Do you go home that night or the next day and think, oh, I, I need to... I need to kind of get away from this or was it still a while away? No, it it, it began it started coming then, but it was a slow process. It was it was that and then I didn't think I was really doing a whole lot wrong until you kind of get a general feel of how people might perceive you to be or think you're getting above your station where I, I really didn't think that I'd done any harm to anyone. Yeah. And yet maybe I was seen in in aspects of my life were being seen that weren't expected of of a rugby player and particularly a captain of the national team yeah so it wasn't a fair perception of you would you say looking back or do you think you were no I don't no I don't I think listen blonde hair and accepting an award accepting a gong for Ireland's sexiest man (laughs) does not look good (laughs) good I'm I'm, I'm I'm really I'm I'm fighting a losing battle here but at the same time in my own head I didn't think Oh, I I don't look back and go, God, I really lost it in those years. You weren't because walking I wasn't, around. Yeah, I wasn't. Around. No, I wasn't thinking that. I was, I was going. Ah, this is all a bit of crack, isn't it? Yeah. And so what? Who cares if you know a few people don't you know can't see that can't see the joke in this? Um, I remember at that Henry McKean, you know, who was in class with me, taking the Mickey out of me, mm. going, um, "Do you think you deserve this award?" Um, no, no, I don't, because I. I, I do see what's going on in the mirror on a daily basis. Yeah. That is not number one in Ireland. Michael Checker comes in and it's really fascinating to to see you at this point then where you're 27 going on, 28. And you write in the book, I've won Celtic League medal. I'm 27, 28. You go into the office and you say to him, and I didn't realise, I didn't realise this, but you said to him, I'm gone in a year. Mm. If so, if, I mean, if, if things improve, good, but I'm I'm actually going. And you meant it. Mm, I did at that time, yeah. There was a, there was a bit of a play-acting with a couple of French clubs before that, but I genuinely went in saying that, uh, like, this, this, I just can't go on this way. I've got, to, I've got to win some stuff. I really can't go through a career of one Celtic League medal and, you, you know, people slap you on your back and say, well done, you, you know, you're a nice player. Mm. But ultimately, as a professional, you are judged on, on what you've won. And people look back on players from the past to what they've won what they've achieved on Lions Tours World Cups you know and now in more recent years Super Rugby and Top uh, and European Rugby mm. um, so yeah I I, I kind of just I, I, I was at the end of my tether particularly with four coaches in four years as well I said yeah. we, we got to sort this out Let's say for instance Cheka hadn't you know because he was untested in a way mm. then Mark L had been there and Kidney had been there and so say he was another coach in three years which hadn't worked out would you have gone through with it? Would you have left? Yeah, I think I would have. I think I would have. If if it had been, if checks had, had worked out badly, I don't think I'd, I could have stayed on. Right. I don't think I could have. Would have been a massive decision. Pain, yeah, it would pain, have been. Painful would have been one. painful, yeah. yeah. Would have been a bit of the, in a different way, a bit of the Johnny decision. Hmm. Not wanting to, but feeling you had to. Hmm. Is that also around the time where I think you're at Mike Ford's wedding? No, Mike McGurn's. Mike yeah. McGurn's yeah. wedding. 
And Dennis Hickey tells you a story. Yeah, the um, the Paul Wallace story. Yeah, because while he's you know got it, there's a few good stories about while he's yeah. um, he's uh, he's done some entertaining stuff and days gone by. So um, yeah, I'm told um, that Dennis was sitting beside Reggie in the church. Yeah. And he nudged him and said, "Geez, I didn't know that Wally was coming to this um, to this wedding. I, me, standing up there, so a tight head prop that had retired a number of years. Like that's a wake up call. That is a big wake up call. That, along with the picture in the paper the next day or a couple of days later. Oh yeah, with you know um, an underwear shot of Amy that the I'm wind. Ab- that I, yeah, that yeah. I'm oblivious to just because the size of my head is so repulsive." <laughs> She sees her picture and says, oh, look what they've done. Yeah. And you're saying, that's terrible. Yeah. That is awful. How? Oh, my God. My eyes. <laughs> and she's thinking how sweet I am. Yeah. You're outraged. Yeah. Half. Yeah. I'm appalled that they could print something like that and, and you know, reveal, um, reveal her in such an uncompromising way. And it's your fan. And it's actually my enormous can. And so this is this, to sum it up then, it's a fascinating read to watch this evolution to this point where it's almost wasted talent it's almost for different reasons just kind of got away from you and then you turn it around and we had Jim with Enda on mm. Friday night McNulty and that really helps and that seems to put you in the right direction it's also though an awful time for you and people can read the book and I think it's not fair to ask you to talk about it in, in much depth here at all but the very unexpected death of your housemate a guy who you've lived with for four years Barry Toomey and just, you know, best friends, great friend. And, and, and so you're dealing with that and that's an awful period. Yeah, that was a really horrific period uh, for a long time. And, you know, it, it coincided, you know, my form had been poor. So, you know, that's one thing. But then mm. when you have to deal with the tragedy of of, um, of a, a friend, a friend's suicide, you just can't get your head around that so it's trying to usually I would say that the rugby pitch is a great place to be able to switch off mm-hmm. but I just couldn't get my form to and that was just hanging over me and then obviously the New York uh, stuff get me up piled on top of that and that was uh, I didn't know how that was going to play out whether I was going to have to go to New York and sit through a court case mm-hmm. or what and, and just it was all it was just all played on my mind so badly and you know, to deal with that grief alone would have been awful. But then, on top of it, I had my own issues to deal with too. Mm. Do you ever stop and think it's kind of odd how it was so bad around that time, maybe oh seven, oh eight, and then leads into one of the great years of your life? I mean, how do you reflect think, on that now? I think when you, you know, that's why I've, I think I've focused so much on on the end of stuff and why it's become, because why it was a pivotal moment. Um, because I was able to change, turn my fortunes around, because I was able to concentrate on getting myself right into a position, into a place of being able to play much better rugby and get back to where I knew I was capable of. And he, what Enda did was he got me to answer a lot of my own questions about have I lost my the ability that I had you know, a couple of years younger? And I thought, no, not yeah. at all. I know it's still there. And then he just had me refine my living um, standards of hydration and nutrition and rest and extras and all the you know the work hard um, policies that or the work hard elements that just give you every chance of getting better mm. and so um, once I did that and my confidence grew and I, I you know every player is a confidence player and when the when the confidence comes back I think 
you know, she puffs the chest out a little bit and you know you the arrogance comes but you you have the belief in being able to to do things again like mm. you remember three four years ago mm. yeah the um grand slam comes that year and there's the Heineken cup and so suddenly your cv is vastly different and just the complexion of your career is very different you mentioned the famous Enfield get-together and Rob Carney mm. puts forward the point to the Munster players that he thinks, you know, they're, they're, they're that bit bigger, better, taller in a red jersey than a green jersey. You say in the book that you certainly thought, wow, Carney, a young guy saying that's brave. Did you agree with him? Um, I didn't necessarily think that he was 100% right but I didn't think he was 100% wrong. And I know that's not giving an exact answer. Yeah. I thought there's there's rationale for asking the question. So there was enough there that that Munster kind of, I, I, kind, I kind of thought if it didn't go well for the national team, the Munster boys might have thought, well, there's always Munster, we have a fallback of mm. Munster. Whereas the ultimate is the national team and everything else is secondary. You know, it's, it's your province or it's the whole country. Mm. And, you know, I've always, I, whenever I'm asked your greatest achievement, it's, I love winning the Heineken Cup. That was great. Mm. But a Grand Slam uniting a country mm. is so far superior to that. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was merit in asking it. And like I said, it was really ballsy for a young lad to come in and say that. I'd say the room went quiet. It did. It was pin drop territory. Yeah. But it was... I don't know, like you probably need to ask the Munster guys and I think Marcus Horan kind of interjected and said he totally disagreed. But it got some form of conversation going and it probably got the other non-Munster players thinking, I wonder, do they? Do they? Mm. Is there a bit more in it? And only they could really know whether they did or didn't. Mm. But they definitely had the fallback because things had been going well for years at Munster. Yeah. Yeah. Did O'Gara, who's again another great friend throughout the book, did he say anything to you about it? About that. Yeah. Um, no, but Raj said a few things about investing a bit more in the Irish jersey. So he intimated it. I don't know what time that was at, but, yeah. you know, um, so he intimated in his own way that I don't not necessarily think that he was, you know, saying, speaking to his Munster players about it. I think he was speaking in general that everyone had to give a bit more to how enormous this green jersey is. Yeah. So... Again, it's it's hard. To, I didn't go and pick. And what did you mean by that, Rog? Exactly. You know, I didn't pick holes, and I just thought it was. It's interesting. It was an interesting because yeah. that was being talked know. about publicly a little bit anyway. The Munster yeah. Leinster thing, and yeah. there was the semi-finals and the Lunster supporters. Yeah. Yeah. All of this stuff was swirling around. Yeah, and it was there was definitely a time from a Leinster perspective that um, there was that frustration in de- in definitely our support going down there, and we couldn't get away from, you know, Munster being the, the core province and they had the the lion's share of national team players and, you know, I think in, in 08 they got seven in the pack and rightly so mm. because they were the informed team. But it was very hard from a Leinster perspective to play second fiddle. You don't want to, as a, as a sportsman in your country to mm. be seen as the also-rans. Yeah. I noticed, even your, your attitude hardened a little bit in that you text Raj before the first semi-final at Lansdowne Road that time and then... When you played at Croke Park, there was no text, there was no. no nothing. It was, I don't know, it was just it was just around that period. It's fascinating to watch you guys harden, I think. You get the fed word. up. You do get fed up of losing. And a time comes where 
you just decide enough is enough. Yeah. And I think we did have that moment. And we played scared that day too. We'd been beaten badly twice that season by Munster in the in the Pro 12. Mm. And we had them and we thought, we remembered what happened in 06. We were beaten out the gate. And I think we just, we played a bit fearful of that humiliation that we'd have to suffer again. Mm. Some, and that's often a good way to play. Yeah, you, know, you can see teams, the massive underdogs, completely overachieving against you know, the world's best teams because they play, play absolutely frightened of humiliation of what yeah. they have to deal with after the game. Mm. You guys kicked on and that's the lovely thing to watch as well in that that didn't satisfy you. 09 would have been a nice point to go. Oh, you know, I can, I can relax a little bit. It seemed... In, trigger some appetite for more of it and they had they had two <laughs> two it was, was two, that, was one that a part of yeah really sure sure yeah they they set the standard and then we wanted to chase that standard and we wanted to kick it on to the next level which we managed to do hmm. and winning back to back was huge that was a real because Leicester were the only team that had done that and I think it, with each with each one you win you elevate yourself con- exponentially hmm. in the opinion of the rest of Europe. So one is, yeah, oh, well done, yeah. European winners. Two is, ooh. Wasn't, wasn't a fluke. You know, yeah, yeah, they've gone well twice. And three is, pff, they're only one behind Toulouse. Yeah. Toulouse has been unbelievable forever. Yeah. So. I did like the scene where at training, there's young Keen Healy's and young Jamie Heaslips around and you and Shane Horgan get into a fight, yeah. as happens in training. And yeah. afterwards, you're kind of smiling at each other and the young Keen Healy's and Jamie Heaslips are looking going, holy Gee, what the hell yeah. is this? It was such a great tone to set, yeah. even though, you know, we were lucky that neither of us landed a shot. Yeah. But it was not from lack of trying. Yeah. And it was just, it was the real, yeah, it was the culture and the competitive edge coming out. And the first day of training, first day of being out on the pitch with Joe Schmidt. And I, he probably was licking his lips going, mm. yeah, this is, we need some of this. Mm. And it, because we had to, we had to convince him that we were a decent team, that that 9 wasn't, you know, a, a fluke. Mm. We'd beaten them the previous year in the quarterfinal and we had to prove to him that that wasn't the lucky one-off, that we, we were here for the long haul. Yeah. And so, you know, setting down, because part of drawing him over, he spoke to Leo and to Sexto and they said, listen, we don't need that we don't need motivation from you we need just a little bit of guidance we'll we'll get ourselves going mm. and so i think he saw that day one and it you know two good friends two senior players having a proper cut off off each other yeah. and he was never afraid of seeing the odd brawl you know i think he'd he'd come in and you know, immediately break it up and say, that's not on. But I think inside he was kind of glowing. <laughs> Don't do that again. Yeah, that often. Yeah. <laughs> There's a billion other things that we'd love to ask you. And luckily, we'll probably get to do that over the next couple of Fridays. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked about, like, I haven't touched on the lines and there's, a, there's great stuff there and it's really interesting to get your thoughts on how the different lines tours compared. I guess if you were to sum it up, there's a bit early on in the book where there's a picture of you and Glenda Gilson at the time and the headline is, some guys have all the luck. And this is obviously rife for uh, the dressing room to slag you about. And Raj says, you're lucky you play rugby. You'd be getting the 46A into work, data input, a desk job, cheese sandwiches, and you'd be fat as a fool. (laughs) Which is is brilliant. But I kind of think it's summed up a little bit how you feel about how it's all gone for you. You found yourself on this incredible journey. The L rugby's great, huh? Yeah, 
it's helped out a bit, you know. <laughs> the cheese sandwiches is nice, isn't it? Line. I was, yeah, and, and me like out of all those things, saying no, I'd have to stop with the cheese sandwiches, <laughs> yeah. whereas the rest is absolutely capable of happening. Yeah, I'm really more of a hang sandwich man myself. Like I look back, and life could have been totally different. Yeah. It could have been, I you know, for a number of reasons. If if you don't get the breaks, or you know, if injury cuts you short, you have to find a completely different path than I found over the last fifteen years. Hmm. So I do look back with a real sense of being very lucky and fortunate to have lived the life that I have lived, and. It was less, I had so much fun along the way, a little mm. bit of heartbreak at times, but I had so much fun. And even, and like I said, those early years were great and I wouldn't change them because they, I think they mould you as, as the person you end up becoming. Mm. It shines through. You're just a naturally positive person. Like some people have to make an effort. It's just That's just who you are. Yeah, I think, I think certain people bring the best out in you. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> but my, but my missus, you know, I, 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 I think that I, I do think she, I am the best part of me around her. I think she does bring out the the fun side. And did she change you? Yeah, I think so. She, but she, she brought out the real me, the person that was that I'd been brought up to be. Yeah. And then, you know, I knew it, but just dragged the best parts of that out. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, I would say she changed me one hundred percent for the better. Yeah, because the book starts with domestic bliss. Your last game for Leinster. You get up. Sadie wants her bottle. Do that seven in the morning. Lie on the couch for two hours, listening mm. to nursery rhymes. And mm. You seem like the most content man. It's mad. I, I, you know, you look, I look back to times when I came into the squad early as a twenty-year-old, and I see these guys with wives and kids, and I thought, "Oh my god, that's so grim." <laughs> look at the life they're living. And then you, as you're thirty-four, thirty-five-year-old, and that is your life. And I look at those young lads, and I go. God, isn't that a grim existence of having to go out every weekend yeah. and, you know, try and pull and, yeah. you know, Hangovers. Try and, you know, stay out till five and six in the morning so you can get the T-shirt. And I just look and go, God, I, I'm so glad I'm over that bit. Yeah. And like, it's nice to stick your toe in every so often. I, I still like the odd night out, but it's a bit of a rarity now as opposed to week on week. Yeah. And last question. Are you optimistic about the future? Do you know what the future is? Yes, we all have. No, I don't know what the future is. No. There's no master plan? No, there isn't. Um, I'm trying to grow bits along the way um, in finding my feet and seeing what I'm enjoying. And, I, you know, genuinely for, for the, the talk with End a couple of weeks ago was the, was the most comfortable I felt in my news talk stuff. I think every time I do a BT gig, I get a little bit more comfortable with that and I'm growing into that. Mm. And I, I don't know what's coming yet with other things and I want to keep my options open with that. But everyone has their insecurities and I have them too and sometimes, yeah, you suffer um, a little from confidence. So it's just about, I want to play my way into the next phase of life, really. And, into the real world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Um, you don't want to forget the, the, the good parts. That's why I wrote a book of 400 pages. Yeah. Hey, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you take those toothpicks out of your eyes now. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Brian O'Driscoll, The Test, my autobiography. Thank you for coming in. I guess we'll see you next Friday. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Off the ball, with thanks to Ford. Making its way out of the tunnel very soon is our very own game changer. The all-new Ford Mondeo. Ford. Go further.